Welcome to Season 3, Episode 9. This is going to be a slightly more informal episode. I'm going to be interviewing this week, later, an expert in homeschooling who is also an engineer and really loves science, so that's going to be a fun conversation. But in the meantime, I thought I would just share another episode for you, since the other one won't be until end of March or April. And I thought it would be fun to share some insights that I've had at different points in my career. And I've had a very long career so far in life with a lot of twists and turns, a lot of things that were off the beaten path, uh, much to the disappointment of many people in my life who tried to convince me otherwise and may not even have seemed to make a lot of sense to a lot of people as I went along. But I have to say that as everything gets integrated into where I'm at now, what I want to share with the world, what I see going on in the world today, I'm very, very happy with all of my choices. So I thought I would just share some highlights. I'm not going to go into every job that I've had because it's kind of embarrassing how many there have been, but I've extracted so much value from all of them, and I'm really grateful for all of them as well. I will say that an overarching theme, there's probably two, but the first that comes to mind, a really big theme that emerges as I reflect on all of these points of my career is that who we have in our life, who believes in us, and who believes in our potential, matters a lot. And that goes for whether these are friends or partners, parents, teachers, bosses, supervisors, etc. Having that person who really gets how great you are, and believes in that and gives you the freedom to explore and do your thing. Those are people that are really special and really important in the world. And I have been lucky enough that in many of the places that I've worked, I have had people who really saw that in me and that is also a very different experience than it was for me growing up within within the home. So I'm not going to go into that. That's not the point of this discussion. But I did want to just share that as a message for any of you out there who are working with, with young people especially, but really anybody, that if you are someone who serves as some kind of leader or mentor or source of support, you're belief in somebody and in their abilities and in their potential could change their life. So I just want to share that as the first overall theme that emerges as I reflect on on my career and, and the people who have come along. And I'm so grateful now also to have a few select people who really believed in my potential and have just seen that from the beginning and their presence in my life has made a world of difference 
try not to get emotional about it, but just, uh, I just wanted to send that as a message to any of you out there that your belief in somebody and in their potential is really special and really important. I'll start with a major part of my career that kind of launched a lot of things, which was teaching French and specifically teaching French to diplomats and high-level government officials who were being stationed abroad or on specific missions where they needed to have French specifically, either due to the geography or because of the high level in Canadian government, you have to speak both languages. One kind of surprising thing, theme that came out of teaching there was the importance of mindset and purpose. So especially when it comes to adults, it's very important for them to understand why they are learning a certain thing. But I also discovered that with my students, I would have a a small cohort and we would be together for full-time for over a year and they would go from zero French skills to completely fluent in one year. Their sense of purpose, so their ability to tune in to why they were important, not just the French speaking, but why their job was important, what their contribution to the world was, that was actually a very big influence and was something that I knew I needed to tap into as I was teaching them. And when I could get to that place where we could acknowledge their contribution and their importance in the world, that was a really key pillar to them continuing to persevere and push through different tasks and and a lot of the repetition that's involved and a lot of the challenge that's involved in learning something like a new language, especially as an adult. So that was one piece was the purpose. And then the mindset was the other And I didn't have that word mindset at the time. It was just this idea that I knew I needed them to really believe that they were capable of learning, that they actually really had that capacity. And I would start with mini victories and really hone in on small micro blocks that they could master so that they could feel that victory. They could feel the all of the feel-good neurochemicals that come from it and just that mastery of very specific things. And so some of that, one of the kind of easier ones or simpler tasks that I would get them to master would be micro-movements of the mouth and the tongue and the lips in order to eliminate the English accent as they spoke. So I won't get into all that, but there's like a whole special triangle vocalique, which is a, a triangle that shows you how to move your jaw and your mouth in very specific formations and it's very different from English to French to Spanish or German and when you can master that and it's you know it's motor it's a sensory motor skill it really really helps and so as they would master even just small sounds that were very difficult to achieve in the beginning 
that would give them the motivation to keep going because it showed them that they had the capacity to learn. And I wasn't as into neuroscience at that time, but I understand now how that was the process of neuroplasticity that was them building circuits in new ways. So that was the other thing that was also very important was that idea of mindset, the our, our belief that we have the capacity to grow and evolve and change and learn, and that this can happen no matter how old we are. It does get more difficult as we get older because we have more circuits that are going to compete with the newer ones we're trying to form. But it is possible. I had people in that were close to retirement that were excellent students that went from zero to fluent in that year. And that was that was also a big one too because a lot of people hear that adults can't learn new languages very well. But with enough repetition and mindset and purpose, it's possible. And then one key piece of that as well is that the teacher matters. I happened to be a really good teacher and I also had someone who believed in me. My supervisor, the director of the program, saw me as a gifted teacher. I didn't have training in it, but she saw it immediately and trusted me and really let me do my thing in the classroom. So I redesigned the curriculum. I brought in things that had never happened before. I brought in research and did a lot of exercises that she had not done before that worked extremely well. And I ended up getting an award from the federal government for my teaching abilities. And it was partly my skill, but it had a lot to do with her belief and her trust in my potential and in my capacities as a teacher that really let me shine in that classroom. So teachers matter. My belief in the students was a really big part of that. My skill as a teacher mattered and my supervisor's belief in me mattered. So I want to put that out there as well, that sometimes we may even evaluate students or people are evaluating themselves and their ability to learn that might get diminished if they have a really bad teacher. And unfortunately, there are a lot of bad teachers out there, teachers who don't really care or just simply don't have that level of attunement or skill And a lot of that also has to do with not great teacher training. So I think there are ways that we can train teachers to do better at what they do, but it's not there yet. So just putting that out there as well, that we may evaluate a lot of people and their ability to learn without thinking about how skilled and effective and attuned their teacher may have been, because that's a really important part. So mindset and purpose and quality teachers as well as mentors for the teachers. Those are really important for learning. Another phase of my career was working for the Department of Defense, and I won't go into what exactly, because it was, it's classified, (laughs) but some aspects that I can share are that human behavior has patterns, 
and we are fairly predictable creatures. <laughs> and a really big aspect of how we are predictable is in our communication patterns. So something to think about, and they actually implemented this as part of our professional approach to solving problems, was they very intentionally put members of completely different types of industries and departments together onto teams. So people from military and not just military, but within very distinct and unique levels and aspects of military, as well as people from completely different types of industries that I'm, I'm not really going to share here. But it was fascinating to watch the kinds of new ideas that emerged when you had people like that come together. And those meetings and those teams were very, very different and very innovative and creative in their approaches to solving different challenges we had compared to when it was just a certain kind of subset of people that have a very similar job and similar job responsibilities and backgrounds and education levels and things like that. So that was uh, an important part of that job as well. And it was another example also for me of a mentor and a supervisor who really also believed in my potential. I worked with one of the task force leaders for just not going to get into too many details, but this person really saw my ability to recognize patterns and to notice irregularities in, in patterns. And their belief in, in me as well gave me a lot of confidence to try out different strategies and bring new kinds of information to the table. And it ended up being a very valuable kind of connection for us to have. So that was another example as well of having somebody who who sees our potential and allows us to be creative with that as well. And one other aspect of that phase of my career also was a new awareness of how our internal physiological state is influenced by our stress responses and that those stress responses are transmitted out as waves and frequencies that can be read by people but also by machines. I had a lot of aha moments as well because of those those aspects of, of that phase of my career that then fed into later phases of my journey when I got into graduate school. So those were just some insights from that position that if we are working for different organizations, it is incredibly important to have people who come from very, very different backgrounds coming together to share ideas. And there are studies also on communication that when we speak regularly with the same people, we tend to not share very novel information. It's the connections we make with people where there's less regularity, where novel kinds of ideas and information get shared. So something to think about in your own life and your own organizations. Another journey I went on that was very special to me and was also what launched me into my study of neuroscience and specifically neuroplasticity 
was working for an organization, and I've mentioned this in a few episodes already, I think, of an organization where we worked with students who were high school graduates, but they were having a fairly difficult time in the traditional kind of classrooms and had some different behavioral challenges or mental health challenges. And we took them on service learning trips abroad. And the the one that I was a part of went to Central America. So we stayed in Guatemala and Honduras and Costa Rica. And we learned language as we were there, but we also engaged in different community projects. We did get stuck in a hurricane. Luckily enough, as a team, the the leaders that I was a part of, we had already planned ahead for that. So we had water and food stored and different ways of heating food, things like that. So we ended up being okay because it was about five days without water or power. But uh, even within that, what happened was different kinds of projects to help the community started to surface for our students to become a part of. And it was this combination of having a cohort, having a team where we were very mission oriented in terms of really wanting these kids to see their potential, see their capacity to contribute. We did a lot of self-reflection kind of exercises with them, one-on-one coaching. But the other really powerful part of this program and what I saw was this idea that I've mentioned a few times of what you would call self-transcendent purpose. So having a purpose beyond oneself, feeling like one has something to contribute to the world that is not selfish. It's not about taking attention from people, trying to extract something from somebody else for oneself. It's this idea of truly giving of one's energy and time to help somebody else to alleviate their suffering or build them up in some way. And I saw these young people transform in front of my eyes. And I also got messages from them years later of the different kinds of transformations they'd gone through and how much they had taken off in their trajectories in life. So that was a a very special program. And that was what really got me to think about how, how does that switch on in someone's mind? that they went from seeing themselves as weak and maybe struggling to people who were very empowered and had something to give and had something to offer. And that got me deeper and deeper into the realm of, of the mind and psychology and which brought me into neuroscience and very specifically a concept called self-directed neuroplasticity where we We find ways within our own mind to change our mind, to change the the circuits by focusing our attention in new ways, having new kinds of thoughts, new awarenesses, um, metacognitive kind of strategies. So a really big part of that journey, that part of my career, that point in my career was really understanding the importance of having a sense of purpose, of really knowing that there is something we can contribute to the world. And it actually makes me think of a documentary I saw a long time ago where a person went around to different areas of the world and found that there were a lot of teenagers in these areas that had very little purpose. And so they became very susceptible to being recruited by gangs or by extremist groups, different kinds of groups that were not engaging in very healthy behaviors. 
and even in some cases, extremely violent behaviors. And what they found was when they were able to get to some of these kids and recruit them for very specific projects where they had something to do, whether it was often construction or irrigation systems, things where they had to really use their hands. It was There was physical labor in, in a lot of these cases and not all of them, but they gave them a mission. They gave them a project to do. And they found that the numbers were reduced significantly in terms of their enrollment or engagement into some of those groups, those violent groups. It just makes me think again about a lot of young people now and, you know, what I saw as I was working in that other program, that when people aren't totally clear on some kind of way they can really contribute to others' lives, It's like our beam of awareness gets so focused on us and so focused on what people think of us, how we look, what is our image, how do we signal to others things about us, and it becomes a very self-conscious kind of world to be in. Whereas when we're engaging in that sense of purpose and service and contribution, that attentional beam is focused outward. It's focused on others and people and how we can get into a flow of really connecting with them and figuring out what will help them. So I feel like that is part of a remedy for mental health is changing that beam of awareness to really focus outward onto other people, but in a way that connects what we have inside of us, what the resources that are there internally for us How do we connect that with another person outside of us and build them up and support them and enhance their life in some way? I think that would be something that would be so helpful for a lot of people to connect with. And I saw those changes very profoundly in the programs, many of the programs that I've worked with. And that was another example of that. The fourth aspect of my career, I'm going to talk about five. So this is four. There's one more after this. The fourth aspect of my career, which spans decades really, is working with children. And so I won't go into all the different programs because there's just many. (laughs) I've done, I've created entire neuroscience camps for kids based on all of the things that I have studied and learned I worked for a center for talent development where we really worked with how do we truly unlock potential in kids by helping them tune into what they're very passionate and curious about and then giving them support to master some of those skills as well, but also as a school counselor and researcher and nanny and many, many other things. The theme that is very emotional for me when it comes to all of that is what really became clear in so much of my work with kids is that humanity misses out on a lot of potential that exists within these kids. There are capacities within children that are completely unknown to us 
And it's because they don't have the right people around them. They don't have the right conditions. And those conditions are created by people. And without the right people, without people who are self-regulated and attuned and who have enough of their own neural and behavioral resources to have that beam of awareness really attuned to a child's potential, without that, the entire brain architecture of a child is affected. And those impacts can last their entire life unless some very concrete and explicit interventions happen. So the first chapters of the book that I'm writing actually go into this as well. And it's not a judgment against the, the adults in the world and the adults who are in the presence of these children. It has a lot to do with just a global and universal lack of understanding of how important, first of all, how important caregivers are, teachers and the adults of the world are for kids' brain development. I think many of us have known this on an intuitive level, but it's really only emerging in a sense in terms of the research that's coming out of how incredibly important the ability to self-regulate and attune, how important that is for the adults in the lives of children are. And I have an entire TEDx talk just on that, which I talk where I talk about the idea of prefrontal cortex models, that we need to have models of prefrontal cortex activity. And I've talked about that in many episodes as well. But what we understand now is that we are not born with a lot of those features that are associated with the prefrontal cortex that include things like impulse control, weighing of pros and cons, thinking of future consequences, regulated type of communication and self-regulation abilities. We're not born with those things and we must have the right people around us in order for that architecture to form. And it takes a very long time. So into our late, late 20s is when that kind of activity is really, truly accessible to us as humans. And so a lot of what emerged through much of my work with kids is the importance of interactive regulation, that our nervous systems are intertwined with each other, and that we need a systems thinking kind of approach when we think about child development, that behavior is not some static thing that is just embedded inside a child. Certain people will bring out certain behaviors and others will bring out other behaviors. But there are also many other factors that contribute to how a child develops, including their sleep and their nutrition and the physical environment and even things like the acoustic environment of, of how they grow up and how that affects the different structures inside the middle ear, which affects their nervous system. I've gone into that in other episodes. I believe season one, episode six is about sound. So that's one you can listen to. Also writing about it in my book. The, the voice of the adults and the children, but very specifically, I talk about the adult-child relationship because children must have those kinds of self-regulating mechanisms modeled to them. Not just modeled to them, but people who are capable of attuning to another person's perspective, to another person's internal state. And those are features that really only come on later in life as well. 
or fairly self-oriented as we are little and through exposure to data and other things we become a little bit more aware of other people's internal states so children really need adults to be able to do that with them and the quality of the adult's internal state is unbelievably important for what happens to the behavior and the internal state and the brain architecture and development of a child. So the adults of the world need a lot of self-awareness and that was what really also became an important part of my work after I worked with so many kids was to bring a lot of education to teachers and parents because they don't necessarily have that. And so the more that they could understand the importance of their own systems, their own state, their own patterns, their own unhealed wounds, that was a big one as well. The more they could understand how much their own past was affecting their perception of themselves and their child, and that that was translating into behaviors and reactions to children that were not necessarily attuned and not necessarily the most optimal kind of reaction to have with children. As they started to learn that, that helped create different kinds of dynamics within within parent-child interactions. So I became a very big believer in psychoeducation, parent education, teacher education, just education for adults in general who are in the presence of children. And that continues to be really important for me today. And one other piece just to go along with that is that the concept of mindset always emerged again and again within that as well, because, and I'm going to equate mindset also with the idea of paradigm, that being the way we see the world, just kind of a, almost a way of revealing more of the world to ourselves, that the paradigm or the perception or mindset of a parent it can be switched with information. So as they get information and they connect the dots to themselves, to their own upbringing, to their own behaviors, their own reactions, as they gather that information, as they have some of that, and then they apply it. And sometimes even it's an internal shift without even application yet. But as they receive some of that information and there's those aha moments, they're able to get to that space and then be able to apply it and see the results in their life. There can be really profound changes. So it doesn't always have to take a huge amount of training, but it does require some really powerful insights to happen on the part of a person. And that paradigm or mindset shift honestly can happen in an instant. And I've seen it over and over again, where there's this aha moment that is so profound that it translates into new behavior. Those behaviors still have to be fed and there needs to be still consistency and that person has to continuously learn and apply and and do all those things. But that initial shift is the big one and it's that moment, that shift, that mindset shift that really triggers all these other behaviors that they can then get new feedback on that creates more more and more changes. So mindset shifts are powerful and they can, I think, occur with education. That's another big driver as to why I keep doing what I do, why I keep sharing content in the hopes that 
There's those little shifts that can happen for people, and then they try it out for themselves, and they look at how it plays out in their own life. And then finally, where I'm at now and has been a part of my life for a while is the aspect of biofeedback and specifically like these frequencies and signals of our brains and our bodies or, you know, for example, our heart rate, variability, how our skin conducts electricity, how our facial facial muscles twitch, and that in the realm of neuropsychology. That has been a big part of my career in the in the last while. And I would say that one of the themes that has emerged from that is that we have a lot more control over our brain-body systems than we have been taught and that we probably currently realize. And the reason I say that is because I have data in live time that I'm watching. I'm watching the wavelengths. I'm watching the frequencies. I'm watching all of this data emerge moment by moment from people and I can see these things change over time depending on what they are implementing in their lives as well as in the moment based on what I might be asking them to do or different tasks that they're doing. I love being able to see that on that concrete level because it helps us understand that everything we're doing is a vibration. It's some kind of molecular movement of some something within us that emits signals and some of those signals are just coursing through our internal systems and they're also being transmitted out into our environment and we have the capacity within us to consciously first of all become more aware of all of these different vibrations that are occurring within us and also to control how they get transmitted and a lot of this has to do with speed the speed of these wavelengths so the speed of our heart the speed of how quickly we talk how we breathe the speed of our movements and the speed of our thoughts and what I mean more by that is how quickly our beam of awareness is flitting from one thing to the next and where it is going like where it's shining Something that we can always think about is what speed am I at right now? And I do this for both my heart, my breathing, my movements, my speech, but also brainwave, brainwave frequencies. So I, I know them really well and a lot of people don't, but just something to know is that when we are in a very specific problem solving kind of mode, where we're really, really thinking about a concrete problem, there's generally going to be faster activity. The clusters of neurons are a little bit closer together as we bring up you know, sensory motor simulations of very specific things that are going on for us. And so as those clusters are close to, closer together, that creates um, faster frequencies. Faster frequencies feel fast. They make our brain feel fast. That's great for a lot of scenarios. So we want to be in that. 
when we're in a lot of external, externally oriented kind of situations where we need to solve problems quickly. But we also may have moments where we don't want to have that kind of speed inside, inside our mind. We actually want to feel a little bit more relaxed. And so what that requires is for slower brainwaves. And one of the ways that we can slow down our brainwaves is to let go as best we can of that concrete problem that we're thinking about. So the more general we can go, the slower the, slower the thinking will become. And one way we can kind of hack into that is to actually completely let go of the thoughts of whatever that problem is, even if it's just momentarily, to come back into something that is currently in our environment that has a more gentle rhythm to it. So you'll always hear me talk about the breath as one of those things, but it can also just be if you have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, watching the steam wafting in the air. If you have pets, watch their bellies breathe up and down, or even just watch their movements because they, even though they might run back and forth really fast, it's still not as fast as what's happening inside your brain in terms of the electrical impulses. So that would be another another thing you can look at. Anything in your environment that has a stillness to it or a r- gentle rhythm. So that's one idea. And then any kind of thought that just has a bit more slowness to it. One thing that we can do in terms of that is to think of things that we're grateful for. Although it's still a concrete thing, as we slow down in order to just seek out things that are pleasing to us, it's a different kind of activity than problem solving. The problem solving part is often what speeds things up quite a bit. So those are just a couple of ideas of slowing down some of our thoughts when we want to. Life tends to present us enough stuff that will speed up our brain. Definitely looking at your phone will keep those brainwave frequencies pretty high. So if you actually want to relax, a lot of people take their phone because it's so mechanically easy and neurochemically easy to use your phone to relax. And it feels kind of like it could be a relaxation when we do it because it's so easy. But in terms of brainwave frequencies, you are not necessarily going to get the frequencies that are actually going to put you in a very, a much more regulated kind of rhythm and pattern. So if you, I would recommend if you want to feel a little bit less anxiety for short periods of the day, it would be removing, like not looking at a phone and looking at things that are real in our actual environment. So that can definitely be outside and in nature. If it's not possible because of whatever your situation is, at least looking around the room at very concrete things because their their patterns are slower and they're not emitting light the way phones do on a very small space. So that's the other thing too. Your eye movements and how quickly they're moving back and forth also are going to create faster frequencies. So looking at a small little area like a phone, your eye movements are very, very rapid and only scanning a small territory. So that's also going to affect your brainwave frequencies. So scan wider territories, like look from one end of the room to the other end of the room. That would be another way to slow down and just get some relaxation in the brain. 
So those are some highlights of different phases of my career. I hope you enjoyed that. Just thought I'd give that a try and just give uh, an episode before I post the next one. That's an interview. So stuff that's coming up for me is I'm doing a lot of different trainings because I am hoping to, in the future, it's still going to take a while to build this up, but I am really hoping to spend a lot more time outdoors and have a, a deeper sense of connection with team and teams of experts and take people on journeys, on self-discovery journeys that help them understand their power and their mind and their ability to contribute and connect with others and to move away from a lot of the computer-based work that I'm doing right now. Still a long process, but doing some trainings along the way to get me there. And I'll update you on all of that as they happen. So I hope you get a chance to check my website. I do post articles fairly regularly and I give little updates on all the different things that I'm trying out. Doing some Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and some personal security classes coming up that I'm excited about. Wilderness therapy, wilderness first responder stuff. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, go to my website at stephaniefay.com and check those articles out. And I hope you all have a great week. And I hope that you all have somebody in your life that really believes in you and sees your highest potential and trusts in your ability to explore that and to shine your light in your, in your own unique way. We all need somebody who does that. So I hope you have somebody who does that for you, and I hope you're able to play that role in someone else's life as well. It can make a world of difference. So thank you for joining me. Thank you all so much for your support. I love all the emails that I get uh, supporting me, and any kind of reviews that you can leave are also really nice. They help with promoting the podcast. So if you believe in what I'm doing, and you love the messages that I share, I hope you will take a moment to leave a review for me or send a message my way. I, I really appreciate it. And I will also send some updates about the book coming up too. So thanks again, and I will catch you in the next episode. 